Well, good morning, everybody. We're so glad that you're here this morning. And if you're on our online feed, we want to particularly welcome you this morning. We're so glad uh, that you're able to come. I heard a few people are actually on vacation right now. So maybe you're piping in online from vacation. So if you're on vacation right now, thanks for joining us. I, I imagine you're swimming on a floaty somewhere uh, with your phone watching. So be careful. Hold that phone st uh, strong. Don't let it drop uh, in the pool or wherever you're at. But for those of you who are not on vacation, we want to welcome you as well. We're so glad that you're here. We're going to be out of the book of uh, uh, Acts as we have been in chapter 9. So if you would, would you stand with me as we read uh, from our seats, uh, uh, read here uh, uh, Acts this morning. And we'll do that as we do. I invite you to stand. We do that. Um, we start off with a prayer uh, called the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. It's a way, uh, there's a lot going on right now, a lot going on with our world, a lot going on uh, just uh, in general. And so this is our chance to be able just to kind of refocus uh, on hearing from God this morning. And so uh, if you would say it after me, this out of Deuteronomy 6, say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 9. We'll be starting in verse 1 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. It says this. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around them. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So like I said, a few of you are on vacation right now. Um, my family and I, we just got back from a vacation. We spent a couple weeks each summer uh, in Vermont. That's where my family is from, or excuse me, my, my wife's family is from. And we go visit them uh, every summer. Uh, my wife grew up on a mountain in Vermont. And when I say that, I don't mean like, ha oh, yeah, like, like literally a mountain, like you drive up a mountain to get to her house. And if you think of all the quintessential things about Vermont, They've got them. There are sugar shacks in the woods. There are covered bridges. There are country stores. It's the whole thing. So we enjoy a few weeks out there to kind of unplug and relax. But this year was a little different because we have a one-year-old daughter. And so vacation with a one-year-old daughter is basically just chasing pretty much the whole time. It, at least it was in the woods, so that was at least good. But we basically chased the whole time, and she's not very good in the car. And so uh, there was a lot of crying, a lot of upsetness. We just kept feeding her ice chips over and over. She loves ice chips, so that's just for hours on end. Just She was very hydrated by the end of the trip, just feeding her those ice chips. And so we were kind of gearing up uh, to leave. We were gearing up to go home, and we knew we had a long trip ahead of us. And so we stopped at a coffee shop uh, in the town just to uh, grab some fuel before we kind of made it out. It's not a terrible trip, but with a one-year-old, it's not 
a great trip, so we were getting ready, and I was standing in line, and um, service was a little slow, so it took a little while, and I sat there, and as I was standing, the proper six feet apart, of course, even at six feet, I could uh, clearly overhear uh, the woman in front of me complain to another woman all about basically her entire life. I mean, I got her entire life story as she kind of complained, this very bitter, very kind of sharp tone. Do you know people like this, that just every time you talk to them, it's just, you, you, you're defensive, you just feel a little like, ugh, what's, because they're just, they've got that angriness in their, in their voice, right? They just have that, that, that sharp bitterness to them, and she was going on and on about her ex-husband and his behavior and uh, all these fake friends she had that no one cares about her, and she just kind of went, on and on and really didn't care that there was anyone else around uh, to hear. So this wasn't eavesdrop as much as just standing and just hearing this thing. And as it continued, as it just kind of kept going on and on, I just I began to think, what must have happened to this woman? Like seriously, what in her experience did, did something traumatic happen? Or, or was this just over a lifetime of disappointment and bitterness and, and probably some bad choices as well that just over years of that type of environment just grew her and developed her into the person that we were listening to now. I got, finally got my coffee. I got back in the car and as I'm trying to go somewhere else in my mind as my one-year-old is uh, not happy in the back, I began to think more about her. And then I began to think, what would it take? What would it have to take in order for her to choose another way? Uh, to choose uh, the grace and the love and the forgiveness and the acceptance of Jesus? What would, it, what, what would she have to overcome in order to do that? What walls would have to come down? What intervention would be needed? What grudges would she have to let go of? And honestly, as I thought about that, the thought overwhelmed me because it just seemed near impossible that the, the odds were so stacked against her based on everything I had just witnessed for 10 minutes. Like, how would she possibly even begin to start that conversation and that journey towards Jesus? She just felt too far gone. Do you know someone like that? Someone that's in a different situation, but has that either bitterness or that foolishness. Maybe it's someone who's distant or broken or arrogant or foolish. And the thought of them turning it around overwhelms you. And you just think, there's no—that person is too far gone. I'd like to introduce you to someone like that. His name is Saul. And if you think the girl in the Dunkin' Donuts line was bad, get a load of this guy that we're going to look at this morning. Saul is introduced here um, in, excuse me, here. Saul is introduced uh, here in, our, in, our, in, in chapter 9 here for the first time, but really we've gotten hints of that already. We've already seen sort of him uh, being mentioned here or there. You just get a little uh, uh, clip here or there in it. And so uh, I want to read that to you uh, to begin, just to see some of the little ways in which we see where he was going. First off, he was a, uh, he was a Pharisee. Uh, Saul was someone who grew up uh, in Jerusalem after he showed just this really great capability and intellect. He actually began to study with a very prominent uh, rabbi in Jerusalem called Gamaliel. And we've actually read about him a few times uh, already in the book of Acts. So he studies with this guy, and it's believed that he then rose the ranks to sit on one of the highest, if not the highest, council in all of Jerusalem and all of Judaism, the Sanhedrin. 
And so this guy is a big deal. The evidence suggests that he rose these ranks. He says in in different parts of the book of Acts, he begins to reminisce later in the book of Acts, in, in chapter 26. He begins to reminisce about his life, and he's telling people about what he did and what went on. And so one of those verses in Acts 26, he says this about himself. He says, on the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and they were put to death. I cast my vote against them. So there appears to be some authority that he has. He actually has some sort of vote, whether that's figurative or a literal vote. He has some sort of authority. He has some sort of title, and many believe he actually did sit on the Sanhedrin himself. So this guy uh, was uh, religious to the bone. He was Jewish to the bone. He, he was somebody that was zealous about the faith, and he used this judicial power to persecute sure that nobody took him. He, but he was more than just like a bellhop here, uh, that many believe that this is, was actually an official role uh, which enabled the group to be able to go forth in stoning Stephen. And so there was this uh, like official role. There was this uh, duty that he had which enabled everybody to then stone uh, Stephen. The, the story then continues. It says that on that day, on that day that Stephen was stoned, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So you see a persecution began to break out, and so the Christians that were living there, remember there's this growing number happening in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden this persecution happens, and everybody scatters. They start heading into different regions, different cities, different towns, because it's not safe in Jerusalem. It says that everyone except for the apostles actually left town. They skipped town to find refuge somewhere else. And Paul is continuing, or Saul is continuing to drag uh, people out and finding them wherever he goes. That leads us to sort of our story today. So we we see these little places, little little things that are happening, and now we see here today uh, an even more uh, uh, firm description of what Paul uh, is doing. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out, it says in our our, uh, verses today. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now this word breathing out is actually a compound word in the original language. And the first word is almost always translated as in and not out. In our NIV it says breathing out. But really this word is in. He, he breathes them in. Which adds a little haunting detail uh, to, the, to the story, if, if, if you will. He breathed in the murder and the threats. Have you ever heard of the expression, ah, just breathe it in, right? We were actually on our way to Vermont, and we were just about to get uh, into town. We were going for one of our trips, and my wife, who grew up there, uh, she was compelled to roll the window down. She stuck her whole head out the window and went, ah, right? She had returned home. All these uh, emotions began to flutter. She smelled all the smells of her childhood, right? They say that smell is, the, is the, the sense keenly connected to our memories and being able to just experience things. And so I remember she turned to us all and she goes, guys, breathe it in, she said. She was having a moment. She was having an experience. She was just letting the whole thing waft over her and she invited us into it. Now, my suburban kids were coughing in the back 
from the mixture of, of pollen and bugs and manure smell. That was really what it was. My kids are all dying in the back, but she was in her element, man. She was just let the whole experience just sweep over her, and she invited us to breathe it in. Our passage says that Paul also was breathing it in, but it wasn't the country air. It was murder and threats. He had let the experience wash over him, and now it's almost as if it was controlling him. He wasn't controlling it. He was breathing it in. He's breathing all of this in. And so he uses this power then to go even further. Again, it's almost as if something has possessed him at this point, that he wants to do that. He is so keen and so obsessed with it that he will go to any lengths, he will go any distance to find them, literally any distance. Second verse, verse 2, it says this. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So when the persecution happened, remember, like we said, uh, the, God's people, uh, the way, they spread out. They, they sought refuge. They fled to other places. And for most of the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, that was good enough, right? It's sort of a riot, sort of an uproar came. They kind of squelched it. People dispersed, and that was it. We don't have to deal with it anymore. We got our city back. We got our temple back. But that wasn't good enough for Saul. For Saul, he felt like he needed to go further. He actually needed to follow them, pursue them as they fled so that he could drag them back to face the council. He actually went above and beyond. He went out of his way in order to find them. He found it necessary to continue the persecution in places outside of the Sanhedrin's immediate jurisdiction. Again, Paul is reminiscing at the end of Acts in Acts 26. He says this. He says, many times I went from one synagogue to another to have them I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. I I was so obsessed with getting at them that I even went above and beyond what was normal. I went above and beyond what what regular people, what the Sanhedrin would have had me do. I had to actually get special permission from the high priest in order to do this because this is not the way things are done because I was so obsessed with stopping this thing that I went and I dragged them and I hunted them down. I hunted them down, he says. Saul sought the approval, got these letters, and then went out, out of his way to do it. He, He was willing to leave his city to go out of his way to stop these Christians by any means necessary. And the passage says he wanted to take them prisoner to Jerusalem. Now the word prisoner here is literally to bind back. It's a word that's used when you're in exile. It's a a word that's used when you're conquered and you actually are dragged back in chains. Again, that's not usually how it was done. It's sort of like when you get served papers, right? It's like, oh, you gotta, you need to come back. The, the, The council, we've got some questions for you. So you might send someone out to say from another town like Damascus and say, hey, you mind coming back to Jerusalem because we've got some questions for you. And it might be a little more aggressive than that. But you never 
chained them up and, and dragged them back. This, this isn't Rome we're talking about. But these are the tactics that Saul took. In fact, in, the, in, in Acts, it's mentioned three times that he does this, that he binds people back to Jerusalem. One writer says it this way, three times this fact of persecution is mentioned is a special blot in Saul's cruelty. Are we getting a picture of who this guy is yet? Someone who breathed in murder and threats, who went out of their way to harm others and hunted them down to drag them bound back. His irreligiosity made him the perfect candidate for someone who was too far gone. This guy was too far gone. He was completely obsessed with this thing, almost possessed in a way. This guy was too far gone. But here's the thing. Paul didn't do this because he was being irreligious. Paul did this because he was being religious. Remember, Saul was a Pharisee, religiously educated at the highest level, and likely sat on the greatest Jewish council. And he's writing a letter to the book. Later on, he writes a letter to the book of Philippi. Uh, we looked at that a few months ago. In this book of Philippi, he, he reveals just how entrenched he was into the religious circles of the day. He says this uh, in, in Philippians. He says, this, if somebody else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I had more. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. This guy had an impeccable record. You couldn't find a blemish on him when it comes to playing the religious game of doing all, jumping through all the hoops, doing all the do's and don'ts, knowing exactly what it was. He was a Pharisee. He was a faultless with the law. He was persecuting the church in the name of God. Paul didn't drag people to prison because he was ungodly. Paul didn't hunt people down because he was some sort of psychopath. Paul didn't breathe in murder and threat because he was irreligious. He did it because he was religious. Or he thought he was being religious. You see, the rabbis and Pharisees of that day believed that keeping God's law as vitally important for the coming of the Messiah— because there was this heightened, at that time, there was this heightened expectation that the Messiah was come. There was sort of a thickness in the air. People believed that it was sudden, that it was going to happen, that it was soon. They were reading the tea leaves and believed the Messiah was coming soon. And they thought that the Messiah was waiting to find righteousness on the earth. That if they could just drum up enough obedience, if they could make sure that everything was right, then they could spur the Messiah on to come. And so their obedience was vitally important to their Savior returning. And anyone who stood in their way or opposed that way were seen as enemies, not just of them, but of God himself. You see, you can be far from God because you're irreligious. We know lots of people like that, don't we? But you can be just as far from God because you are religious. The one who thought he was the most righteous, the most zealous, the most faithful, was actually the worst. You see, this man Saul soon enough becomes Paul. I've slipped a couple of times already, if you haven't noticed, between the two. But he becomes Paul. 
who ends up writing a majority of our New Testament. Something happens to him on a road to Damascus, or someone happens to him, and nothing is the same again. And so as Paul writes this New Testament, one of them is uh, to, a, to a disciple of his named Timothy. So in his first letter to Timothy, he reflects on his life, and he, he shares this about it. He says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, sinners of whom I am the worst. The man who thought he was most righteous, most zealous, most faithful, was actually the worst. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, sinners of whom I am the worst. But God chose the worst in order to show the world that no one is too far gone. Because if you look at this passage, you'll notice that I've uh, chopped it up a bit, right? This is 1 Timothy 1, 13a, and verse 15b. I've, I've taken a lot of liberties to make it say exactly what I want it to say. But now let me show you what it actually says. Because this is the words of the worst, of the worst, of the worst. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Hey, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus displayed his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. I was the worst, and yet, because of his immense patience, he used me as an example to show the rest of the world that no one is too far gone. Some are far from God because they're irreligious. And maybe you know people like that, right? Do you have a person in your life that is willing to leave their city, willing to leave and go out of their way uh, to, to harass you or just to make your life, because you are a Christian, just a little more difficult? And maybe it's not total persecution, but they ask that, those passive-aggressive questions or they tease with a hint of truth or they just are flat-out belligerent to you. We all know that person, or the person that's going down the wrong path. They aren't making good choices and, and you're concerned. Or the person who's just a mess, right? They're angry or bitter or hard to be around, ruining their lives, or so it seems to the rest of us, right? You can be far from God because you're irreligious. And maybe it's somebody you know, and maybe it's you. Maybe for a long time you've felt anxious guilty, like there's a rock on your shoulders that God is just looking uh, to, to spur you or to, to, to scorn you. Maybe, maybe you feel because there's something in your life and you know it. You know that there's something in your life and maybe it was in the past or maybe it's happening right now. And you know you're far from God 
You see, we can be far from God because we're irreligious. But the story of Saul, the story of Paul, is that no one is too far gone, and you are not too far gone. Maybe it's you and maybe it's someone you know, but you're not too far gone. But then some are far from God because they are religious. I'd like to invite the band to come up, if you will. You can, be, you can be far from God because you're irreligious, but you also can be far from God because you are religious. You breathe in death, not because of overt bad behavior, but with judgment and pride and legalism and rigidness. You build prison walls around others that don't meet your standard and drag them in whenever they misstep. You refuse to believe, truly believe, that given the right conditions, they could be just like the ones they judge. Given the right conditions, we can be Saul too, because that's the point of the story, friends, is that you are Saul in the story. You're not the friends. You're certainly not the one who appears to Saul. You're not the people in Damascus. You are Saul on the road, whether because of your irreligiosity or because of your religiosity. You need someone to meet you on the road because you're not too far gone. But you need someone to meet you there, whether in your godliness or your ungodliness. Someone needs to come and meet you on the road and say, I don't care how good you are, and I don't care how bad you are. You are not too far gone. And what's interesting is when Jesus speaks, he doesn't ask Saul, why are you persecuting the Christians? He says, why are you persecuting me? In some mysterious way, when God's people get persecuted, it is an affront on him himself. It's an affront on Jesus. And we see this other places, like in Matthew 25, when he says, when you do these for the least of these, you do it for, for me. And so in some mysterious way, when we love others, we do it to Christ. And when we persecute and are re too religious and, and too overtly uh, 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 stringent and rigidness, we, we, we do it to Jesus too, because at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus who meets you on the road and says, I died because you're living lives of death, whether on one extreme or the other. And I want to invite you to the resurrected life that I started and want you to join me in. Friends, I don't know where you are on the spectrum. I don't know which side you lean towards, but wherever you are, you need to come to the middle of the road where Jesus is, who doesn't care about how good you are and doesn't care how bad you are. You're not too far gone. And when we do that, we are blinded to everything else except for him. When Saul opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And when you see Jesus face to face, it will strip you of seeing anything else. And he invites you into this new resurrected life. I want to be there, friends. Join me in it. Whether you're irreligious and feel that, or you're like me, a recovering Pharisee. Everyone needs Jesus, because it's all about Jesus, because no one is too far gone. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for you, and we're thankful that you meet us on the road, whether in our irreligiosity or in our religiosity, 
you meet us there and you blind us to anything else but you. May we come day in, day out, hour by hour, minute by minute and say, God, I need you. I, I need you. I, I, I'm, I'm the worst. I, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Will you meet me there? And will you change my life? We thank you for Saul's uh, story. Help us to find ourselves in his story. As a, a sinner, the worst, but by your immense patience brought you to himself. Bring us to you, God. We love you. In your name I pray.